0: See, a few of you have known uh, for a while, I've had in class, some that I know, and uh, Jimmy and I have uh, connected here and there at the SBC and T4G and things like that and see each other and, uh, and we'll, we'll chat. And uh, so it's good to connect with students like that to follow up what's going on and hear the great things God is doing here in this place. And um, so I'm honored to be here. Thank you. And look forward to this afternoon very, very much. But take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, let me just say thank you for having me again. Thank you for your connection to Southern Seminary. I know Dr. Moeller would want me to bring greetings to you. And uh, thank you for your support of Southern. In Romans chapter 8, there is a wonderful promise in verse 31, where we're told, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know if God is for you? It's a very important question when you consider the alternative. For example, um, if you want to get married, nothing ever works out. Does that mean God is against you? And what if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have many wonderful children that turn out well? Does that mean God is for you? What if you can't get a job or you lose your job? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you can't stand the place where you live? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you live in your dream house? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? What if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things I've just mentioned here are any indication one way or the other because all of the good things that I have mentioned have happened to those God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for. So how do you know? How do you know whether God is for you or against you? Well, ultimately we know because of what the Bible says God has done for us. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. We know that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us. It's not in accordance with the changing circumstances of our lives, but with the unchanging Word of God. Now as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once today, right? It really makes a difference here. Notice that we have two sentences in this short verse. First one is a question, what then? shall we say to these things? And you can sort of see the Apostle Paul pause right here and stroke his beard and and think about it. What shall we say to these things? And after he thinks about it for a minute, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that little word translated as if, The original Greek word behind that can uh, have a meaning almost like the word sense. In fact, there are several different words in Greek, all of which are translated as if in English, because each of them gives just a little bit different slant on it. And you can't tell in English apart from the, content, the context. For example, to kind of illustrate this in English, a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. Well, we understand if there to mean, well, he might, he might not, depending on the circumstances. But another man might use the very same word saying, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the weather. That's the way the word if is used here. And all languages have something like that. I'm told that the people who live up around the Arctic Circle, uh, the native peoples there, uh, have 16 different words for snow. One is for dry, powdery snow, another word, completely different word for heavy, wet snow, and 14 other words, all translated in English as snow. And so here, when Paul says, if God is for us, the word could almost be translated as since God is for us. But how does Paul come to this certainty? Well, it comes as a result of thinking about these things. Let's look at that first sentence again. What then shall we say to these things? And he thinks about these things. And as he thinks about these things, these things convince Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here today that God is for us. So what are these things that convince Paul in order to convince us that God is for us? And we go back in one sense to the whole book of Romans when he says these things, but in particular, these things refers to the things he's just been talking about. So for example, as we go back to... (coughs) Uh, the, the, the previous paragraph or the beginning of the paragraph, in verse 26, Paul is convinced that God is for us because of what he says the Holy Spirit does for us. Likewise, verse 26 says, "...the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words." And he, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling believers, is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever had a time when you desperately needed prayer, but you didn't know what to pray? You didn't know whether you should pray this way or that way. It's unclear. God's will is not clear to you, but you certainly want God's guidance. And you don't know what to do. You do not know what to pray, though you know you should pray. You want to pray, but you don't know what to pray. Paul says here, the Holy Spirit prays for you in our weakness, in those times when we don't know how to pray as we ought. It's impossible for us to know God's will. We don't in about some things. We don't know the future, in other words. We don't know what the future holds, and so we don't know. Right now, both ways look equally possible to us. Which one would be God's will? I don't know. Only God knows. But I know I should pray about it. The Bible says the Spirit himself intercedes for us according to the will of God. Are you ever had one of those times when you desperately needed prayer, but you couldn't pray? You couldn't pray because your heart was so heavy, like lead in your chest, when all you could do is sort of cast yourself across the bed and just just groan godwardly, oh God, oh God. You never needed prayer more, but you couldn't pray, maybe because you were in such physical pain. Perhaps you've been in the emergency room or in the hospital or some other situation, maybe in an accident, where suddenly you're in a place where you want to pray, terribly you want to pray, but you can't because you're in such pain at the moment. Maybe you're so heavily sedated. I had a very serious surgery one time, and my pastor was with me And you know, right before they took me in, and he said, how can we pray for you? I said, pray that I can pray. Because when you're heavily sedated like that, and other times, you, you, you literally can't put two words together, yet you've never needed prayer more. When those times happen, God is not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless his heart. You know, bless her heart. If she could only utter something, come on, give me something to work with, would you? Say something that that I'll have something to work with. Help me out here. No, no. Our God is so good and so great that when you need prayer but you can't pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you. The Spirit himself, the passage says. And it says he intercedes according to the will of God as though he could pray any other way, right? With groanings, too deep for words, and I think it's referring to our groans, when those times all you can do because you can't put two thoughts together or your pain is so great, all you can do is just sort of groan godwardly, and the Holy Spirit encodes upon those groans the very will of God. And Paul thinks about these things like that. He says, You know, I've, I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been in horrible situations before and I didn't know what to pray. I couldn't pray, but the Spirit was praying for me. If God will do that, God is for me. But that's not all that convinced Paul, nor all here that should convince us as believers that God is for us The next is the very famous next verse, Romans 8, 28, which begins, and we know. Now just stop right there. Most of you know what's coming in the rest of this verse, in this great promise. But if you ever noticed the beginning of it there, and we know that for those who love God, He causes all things to work together for good. How do we know that? Well, have you ever connected that great promise with the previous two verses? When do we cling to Romans eight twenty-eight In the worst times of our lives, right? In the most perplexing times in our lives. We don't know why this is happening. We don't know why, why God has allowed this to happen. And all we can cling to is, but I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love him call according to his purpose. That's when we cling most tenaciously to the promise of Romans 8:28. But Paul says, "We know that so because that's especially when the Holy Spirit is praying for us." Right? When is he especially praying for us? When you don't know what to pray. When you can't pray, he prays for you according to the will of God as though he could pray any other way. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? Wouldn't you think it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered? So in the worst times in our lives, when we cling to Romans 8, 28, we can do so, we know we can, because that's for sure when the Spirit is praying for us. And incidentally, it, it seems to me that Christians seem to be backing away from, from openly clinging to Romans 8.28 or especially sharing it with others. And I think I know why. I, I think many of us have seen people sort of flippantly throw Romans 8.28 out to hurting people, and it seems so insensitive we don't want to do that. But we also don't want to give up this incredible promise. You don't give out Romans 8 28 to someone when they're on the raw edge of pain. When they're angry at God, they're crying out, Why did God let this happen? It doesn't really help at that time. In fact, it can make it worse for some people. To sort of blithely give them, Well, we know all things work together for good. But we don't want to give up that great promise. I pastored in the Chicago area for about 15 years. And uh, it was a great Christian radio station there. And twice during the week they had uh, a retired missionary who would answer questions in a national call-in program. And I remember one night when a young widow in her mid-twenties called in. And it was just choked with tears throughout the whole thing. Her husband had been killed in an auto accident by a drunk driver and left her with three preschoolers. And in tears she said, how could God have let this happen? Though he meant well, what he assured her with was, young lady, I assure you that God had nothing to do with this. Well, what comfort is that? What comfort is it that was God asleep? Did he not know? or he knew, but he didn't care. When you're thinking, where was God in this? It doesn't help to say God had nothing to do with it. The only possible comfort in those mysterious times is that we have a God who does know, who does care, who is in control, and though we may not know the reasons or purposes now, there is one. It's not in vain, it's not wasted. Let's read it again, Romans 8, 28. And we know that, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together. Not for everyone, work together for good. Not for everyone, but for those who are called according to his purpose. And that means everything in the life of a Christian. Even those things that are evil. That you look at that and say, Lord, this is pure evil. And he says, amen. You're right. Lord, there's nothing good in this. That's right. This verse is not calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and, and try to affirm something true that's not true. To try to find the silver lining in the clouds. Some clouds don't have silver lining. It's not calling us to look on the bright side. Some things don't have bright sides. Some things are pure evil. But the promise here is that even in the worst things that ever happen to you, things that are pure evil, God is in control, and he can weave things together that are pure evil in his almighty hands so that a divine alchemy occurs and what comes out eventually is gold. And when it says all things here, it does literally mean all things. Have you ever seen the Old Testament equivalent of this? It's in, um, in Psalm, I lost my reference here. Psalm 91, for all things, Psalmist writes, for all things are your servants. All things, even evil things, even the devil. As Luther said, yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain. And as with Job, he can't a lot touch us apart from that filtering through the will of God. What a great promise that all things in the life of a Christian are in God's almighty hands. And he is so great and he is so good, Paul says. He can bring eternal blessing out of the worst things that have ever happened. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? If we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone this morning, I'm sure we'd hear about many things that have happened to people in this room that someone ought to be in prison for or worse. But the great promise is not just that the day will come when the memory will be erased, the pain will finally be gone, it won't hurt us anymore. Oh, no, it's so much better than that. This is a promise that says the day will come when in eternity we will look back and we will praise God for the worst things that have ever happened to us. Only a Christian can say that. And only a Christian can say that sometimes through clenched teeth and tears. But we can say it knowing that it's true. That we have a God greater than circumstances. Who is powerful enough and who does love enough. Who can take all things, weaving them together in his almighty hand so that the final outcome is gold. Our eternal good, his glory. Paul says, if God can do that, God is for us. And remember who wrote this. It was the Apostle Paul who could look at every one of us and say, after hearing our story, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? He could say, you know what? I have suffered more than you have. And it literally be true. In that autobiographical section of 2 Corinthians is 11 or, or 12, he says, I have been beaten so many times, I have lost count. And on top of that, how many times have you been beaten, by the way, for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've lost count. 195 times on top of that, he said, that the, the whip of the Jews came across his back. 195 lashes. How many times have you been whipped for the sake of the gospel? He said, once I was stoned, Lystra, and left for dead. How many times have you been stoned and those who hated you were convinced you were dead and left you for dead? He said, I've been in danger from Jews. I've been in danger from Gentiles. i am in danger in cities. He had to be let down through a wall. They were watching the gates to kill him. He said, I've been in danger in the country. I've in danger from wild animals. I've been shipwrecked and, and A night and a day I've spent in the Mediterranean Sea thinking I would drown, many sleepless nights often without food, and he goes on and on and on. He could literally say, I have suffered more than you. But he could also say something else, Paul was given the ultimate human experience. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12 where he has that, that, that ineffable experience of being taken to heaven. He says, I don't know if I was in the body or not, God knows. But Paul was taken to heaven for a period of time, we don't know how long. He'd say, now, you know, I, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in your day do, people who supposedly go to heaven. Paul actually went. He saw how it all turns out. He saw things beyond description. He was not permitted to speak about these things. And so that he wouldn't walk around with his thumbs under his lapels, you know, And I mean, he could walk around, guess where I've been. Yeah. And he could listen to anyone brag about anything. And no matter what anybody said, I mean, they could say, I'm the richest man in the world. I'm the king of the world. I'm, I've got the greatest blessing in the world, this, that, or the other. I've got, you know, the greatest accomplishment in the world. He could wait no matter who it was or what they said. He could wait until they were done. And he could say, I can top that. <laughs> No matter what you say, I can top that. He had the ultimate human experience. He got to go to heaven to actually be there and see how all it all turns out and what it's all like. We have to take it by faith. He saw it. And this is the man who, after suffering more than any of us, but seeing what we've not seen, wrote in verse... 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. I consider the sufferings of this present time, and don't tell me about suffering. I've suffered more than all of you, he could say. But I've also seen something you haven't. I've been to the lowest depths, lower than you've been, but I've been higher than you have been. And I've seen it with my own eyes. You have to take it by, by faith. But I'm telling you, Paul said, the sufferings of this present time are nothing compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Because God is going to take all the sufferings we've ever done and transform them in His almighty hands. And this divine alchemy is going to produce a gold forever to our eternal good and for His glory. So that we will look back and say what we cannot imagine saying now. If I knew everything God knew and I had God's heart... I would have allowed everything into my life that God allowed. So it won't just be that we'll reach heaven and the pain is over. He sort of does the the men in black thing, you know, and, and, you know, flashes something, and we have no memory of the pain anymore. No, no. We will rejoice forever about the worst things that have ever happened to us. Now, it's just the opposite for unbelievers. All things work together for evil, for those who don't love God, who are not called according to His purposes. The best blessings unbelievers have ever received, those people will curse them forever that they received them. They will stand as judges over them, condemning them forever. The best things that ever happened, they will wish never happened to them because they didn't thank God for them. They didn't use them for His glory And for a number of other reasons, those will stand as accusers and make their eternity worse forever and ever so that they will wish they had never been blessed with these things in their lives. But again, for those who love God, who are called according to His purposes, He is so great and He is so good that He can take the worst things that have ever happened to us, all things, and turn them into eternal blessings. And Paul said, You know what? If God will do that, (laughs) God is for me. If He'll take everything, even the worst things, and not just neutralize them, but bless me forever for them, God is for me. But that's not all. Starting in the next verse is what is sometimes referred to as Paul's golden chain. Paul's golden chain. This also, Paul says, ought to convince us that God is for us. For those whom he foreknew, this is verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, These he also glorified. If you were in Christ, verse 29 says, he foreknew you. And it's a a very intimate word. It's much more than just he knew about you in advance. He knew what you would look like. He knew what you would be like. He knew what choices you would make. More intimate word than that. We could almost translate this word as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you, every sin you would ever commit, and he loved you anyway. And those whom he foreknew, it says these, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So if you're in Christ, knowing everything about you, he loved you anyway and predestined you to become like Jesus Christ. All those in Christ are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. Rather, we're going to be like him in his sinless, perfect humanity. Reflecting the glory of God from every pore and cell of our new bodies. Predestined to be like Jesus Now, if this passage said we were predestined to become like angels, we would have rejoiced forever that God would make us to be like beings who are that glorious. You know, it's interesting. That's what a lot of people, even professing Christians, believe, that somehow when we get into heaven, humans morph into angels. I mean, Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life, right? Clarence is there. He's an angel, second class. But he used to be on the earth, right? A couple hundred years ago, something like that. He's been trying to earn his angel's wings. And if you see any sort of cartoon about someone going to heaven, they always are angels, right? Right? But we're not predestined to be like angels. But if we were, oh, how we would rejoice. The Apostle John twice in the book of Revelation falls down and worships an angel. Angel even appearing in just a 15-watt bulb version of angelic glory. But even in a 15-watt bulb version of angelic glory, John is so overwhelmed, he falls on his face and worships the angels. And both times they say, don't do that. Worship God. Now, John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? I mean, especially by late in life here, by this time, John knew theologically, you don't worship angels. You worship God only. You know, by this time, he's already written the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, you know, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He knew all the unique claims that Jesus made about being God. He knew you worship God, God alone. And yet, you don't worship angels. And yet, when they appeared to him, he fell on his face and worshipped them. Don't do that, they said. And I'm sure as the old man, you know, got up with his creaky old knees, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I know, I know. But you were so glorious, I just couldn't help myself. If we thought the Bible promised that we would be that glorious, we would be astonished forever to be beings that glorious. But folks, it's way better than that. We are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, reflecting the glory of God forever and ever. And those whom he predestined, Paul says, these he also called. Called through the gospel with a kind of call that awakens the dead. The same kind of call that Elijah, I mean that, that, that Lazarus received. When Jesus and John 11 stood outside the grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And if you hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And that's what he does through the gospel to the souls of those he calls. Like that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd been taking to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night since nine months before I was born. And I'd heard the gospel countless times. But that Thursday night, I heard him calling me through the gospel in a way I'd not heard before, in a way he didn't, hadn't called me before, in a way he didn't call the boys on my right and the boys on my left that night. I heard him calling me. And I didn't deserve it. And I added nothing to the team. He didn't need me. But through the gospel, He called me. Now, anytime the gospel goes forth, there's what theologians call a general call, a sincere call. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who hear the gospel and will respond in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, all who do that will be saved. I will cast no one out. All who come to me, I will not cast out, Jesus said. But then theologians refer to a special call or specific call, like he gave to Lazarus. And like he gives to those who hear him calling like never before. And you don't deserve it. You're not seeking it. He doesn't need us, and though we were his enemies, it's like calling Saul of Tarsus, who was anything but seeking Jesus, on his way to persecute Christians when he was called. But even more than that, those whom he called, Paul says, these he also justified justified A word which many of you know means more than merely the forgiveness of all your sins. As if we can even speak like that. The mere forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. Because if you <coughs> have experienced the forgiveness of every sin you ever committed, you still can't go to heaven. You have to have more to go to heaven than zero sin. And we have infinite sin. You must also have positive righteousness. See, it's one thing not to break the law, it's something else to actively keep the law. I want you to imagine this pulpit here is is the center of a line that extends infinitely in this direction, minus 1, minus 2, minus 3 to infinity, and this is in the positive direction, plus 1, plus 2, plus 3 to infinity. Jonathan Edwards once said, our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. That Every word, every deed, every motive, every thought is affected to some degree by sin. There's no part of us that's not affected by sin and nothing whoever ever say or do or think. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, Everything you ever said or thought or did, every motive would be some shade of blue. Some would be a light blue. Some would be a dark blue. But everything would be some shade of blue. That even in our best deeds, there's sin. Because we never do anything perfectly, purely. When you help some stranger on the side of the road, when you help... You know, some person in great need. When you get up in the middle of the night to care for a sick child, the most helpful, selfless moments of our lives, there's at least some degree of sin, even in our best moments. It may be nothing more than, well, I hope somebody sees me do this. Or I hope my spouse appreciates this. Or it might be nothing more than, well, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it but there's some degree of sin of selfishness in everything we ever do the bible puts it this way even our righteousness says it's a plural term when you do righteousness well all of the times we do righteousness all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags right that's what the bible says now we know our sins are filthy rags, but the Bible says that even when we do what's right in the sight of a holy God, it's filthy rags. Because we never do anything perfectly, purely. Compared to a holy God, our best deeds and thoughts and motives are affected by sin. And when we realize we have sinned, we try, we try to clean it up, we do so with bloody hands. Someone put it this way. Even our repentance needs to be repented of. Even our tears need to be washed. As Edwards put it, our sins are infinite. Every moment, every word, every deed. Upon infinite. And multiplied by infinite. How can that be? Well, we never go a moment without sin. So every moment we live, we're only increasing our guilt before God. And when we are sinning, which is every moment, we are not keeping the greatest of all commandments, are we? What's the greatest of all commandments? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And if you're sinning, you're not doing that. Well, when are we sinning? Every single moment. So we are sinning every single moment, and in doing so, we're breaking the greatest of all commandments every moment of our lives. Infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. The Bible speaks of, I I, I know someone very well who says, I am not a sinner. The same person would say, I'm not perfect. See, the Bible speaks of sinner in a couple of ways. One is sinner in comparison with one another. The Pharisee once saw an immoral woman wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. And he thought to himself, if he knew what kind of woman this was, that she is a sinner, he wouldn't let her do this. So she was a sinner in the eyes of others. But the Bible also uses the term sinner in terms of in the eyes of God. And it says that all have sinned. We never go a moment without sin, even if we're not aware of it. But if you had never sinned in your life, ever, that just brings you back to zero. If all your sins are forgiven, that just brings you back to zero. But to go to heaven, we must have not only no sin, and we have infinite sin, we must also have perfect righteousness. Be perfect, Jesus said, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says it at the end of Matthew chapter (sighs) 5. Be perfect. Who's done that? Well, there was a man. A man who came from heaven. A man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. Every single moment. He kept the law of God. Every single moment, he never broke the law of God. He kept all the thou shalts, and he never broke one of the thou shalt nots. And all of that is, was at least as difficult as the unspeakable wrath that he received on the cross, because that means for 33 years, despite... The temptations of the devil, the pressures of the world, and the pressures of the people upon him. I've been been looking at the passages in the Bible to talk about the crowds around Jesus. And it's unbelievable when you think about it. He would have to intentionally isolate himself or get up before dawn and, and get somewhere to get by himself because people have heard about this Galilean man who can heal anybody of anything. And you can imagine what the medical conditions were like in those days. And people were just swarming constantly. If you could see it from there, it would be like like a swarm of bees around the queen bee, always pressing and people coming in, heal me, Jesus, touch me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, heal me, heal me, heal my baby. I mean, if you had a sick child, a child with some health problems, you'd walk over the top of your best friend to get that baby to Jesus, wouldn't you? And everybody was doing that all the time. Pressing, pressing, just pushing, trying to get to him. i got to get this baby. I don't care who I knock down. i got to get this baby to Jesus. And everybody's doing that. So there were times that he had to get in a boat because they would have pushed him in the water and drowned him because people just kept pushing forward from the back and pushing him into the water. Always screaming, always trying to touch him. And the Pharisees over there criticizing him. And not once, even though he had nights without sleep, Not once did he ever just finally lose it for a minute, but get it under control again. Okay, it's all right. Not once ever. So that through his obedience perfectly every moment, Jesus earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for those who have forfeited heaven. And he willingly submitted himself, offering himself as a substitute on the cross for lawbreakers. As the perfect law keeper, he offered himself. And Jesus offers himself and his righteousness to those who will come and trust in him. And so that the great exchange takes place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we, the infinite sinners, might become zero? Neutral? No, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when we believe into Christ, that's literally what it means we we, you've heard of union with Christ by faith. We faith into Christ. We believe into Christ. Not just in Christ, we believe into Christ. We are united with him by faith and get this. And we get credit for having lived his life. Think of that. God looks upon you as though you healed all those people. God looks upon you as though you taught all those things. He he looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus, as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ. And on the cross, Jesus got credit for my life. And you know what my life got the perfectly pure Son of God? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified you get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And not even that is all. <laughs> for those whom he justified, it says, these he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever. And notice this past tense there. These he glorified. In the mind of God, it's already done. It's still future to us. In the mind of God, it's already done. So Paul says, all right, when I can't pray, when I don't know what to pray, but I never needed prayer more, he sends the Holy Spirit who prays for me. And he prays the very will of God, which is always answered. And he then takes everything that's ever happened to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, and it doesn't just... Give me the hope of neutralizing them someday so that the pain is gone. No, He causes all of these things in His almighty hands to work together in such a way I will bless God forever and ever and ever, not just for the good things that happen to me, but for the worst things that have ever happened to me. And then, knowing all about me in eternity past, knowing every sin I would commit against Him, He loved me anyway. And called me to himself when he had no obligation to do so and he didn't need me and I was acting as his enemy but he called me through the gospel and then he gave me credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus I got the credit for his life and then he's ensured that forever and ever I am made like Christ, what shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot. But at the very least, we can say this God is for us. If God will do all this, God is for us. Now, I'm supposed to be done. That's point one out of three. Let me just hurriedly wrap it up this way. You may be here hearing this and saying, Well, that sounds great in church on Sunday morning. Oh, yeah, inspiring, moving, yeah. But you know, I gotta go home after church, and life is hard at home. I've got to go to work tomorrow, and life is hard at work. Why, if God is for me, like you're saying, why is my life so stinking hard? Well, when Paul says here, if, if God is for us, who is against us? He doesn't say nothing or no one is against us. In fact, he'll go on to say in other places, the world the flesh, the devil are all against us. I mean, the whole world, he says, is against us. To be a Christian in this world is constantly like swimming upstream and the current is going against you and it's getting harder and harder with every passing law, with every passing opinion of society, with every passing election, with every passing day. It's getting harder and harder to live like a Christian in this world. So the whole world's against you. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it'll hate you. But that's not all. The, the, the flesh is against us, the Bible says. The flesh is not just you know, the, the flesh and bone. It's, it's that part of us that even though we are given credit for the life of Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit, the flesh is that part of us that st- still finds sin appealing and temptation attractive. And so this sin factory beating in our chest causes us to make decisions and do things. It puts scars on our relationships and scars on our bodies and makes our lives harder. And then the devil is against us. The devil made life a lot harder for Job. He makes it a lot harder for us. But what Paul is saying when he says, if God is for us, who is against us? He's not saying no one or nothing is against us. He acknowledges all those things. What he's saying is the late Jim Boyce said he was like, Paul has an old-fashioned set of scales here. And on one side, he's putting the things that are against us. Oh, what's against you? What's against me? Paul, the whole world is against me. Okay, and he said it's like putting peanuts on that side. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest sure works against me. Put that over there, Paul says. Plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil sure is against me. All right, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Well, I, I think my boss is against me. I think my teachers are against me. Okay, put that there. Plunk. And then it's as though Paul puts the anvil of God on the other side. Boom! If God is for us, who is against us? The world, the flesh, the devil, your boss, your teachers. Who are they? What are they if God is for us? Who is against us? And therefore, my third point is this. If God is for you, he is for you forever. And Therefore, nothing and no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. Nothing, no one can thwart his eternal plan for us. In other words, your place in heaven is secure. Nothing and no one can stop his plan. If you're in Christ, there is no false teaching you've sat under in the past that can keep you from him. Those false teachers can't cause you to lose your salvation. If you've left some group now that condemns you, there is no religious group, no religious official that can decree you lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving boss, nor any other unbeliever can so tempt you or confine you or restrict you from following Christ as you'd like to that would ever cause him to reject you. And when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? My brother or sister, that who includes you. The who includes you. You did not earn your way into God's salvation, and you cannot send your way out. Now, anyone who hears that and thinks that means once you profess faith in Christ you can live however you want still go to heaven is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. But be assured if you could lose your salvation you would you already would have lost it you already would have lost it if you can lose your salvation. The who includes you now, I say this for those, I say it as a pastorally, as those I know who have very tender consciences, who want God and His salvation and heaven more than they want anything, but they're terrified that perhaps because of, of some sin they cannot conquer, because of some awful sin in the past. The patience of God will finally be exhausted and at the very end, in frustration, he will close the door of heaven against you. My brother, my sister, you know what one of the greatest evidence is? evidences is that he wants you? It's the fact that you want him. That you want him You want to see his face more than anything. You want his heaven more than anything. That's one of the best indications that he wants you. Because where did that come from? That desire for him was put in you by him. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, will be satisfied. Satisfied. He will satisfy that hunger and thirst for righteousness. He put it there in the first place. So let me close now. When God is for you, he is for you forever. So don't doubt his love. If he's for you, he's for you forever. So don't doubt his love. I was reading a book by the most well-known Puritan theologian, John Owen. A book called Communion with God. And I was reading along. It was good. Nothing really jumped off the page at me yet until I reached page 13. And I read one sentence that, like a light switch turned on the tears. Here was that sentence the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to God is not to believe that he loves you. Parents, sometimes your kids will pout and say, you know, you don't love me. And you know they don't really mean it. But there's nothing that would break your heart more than for your child to really be convinced you didn't love them after all these years of what you've done for them. Brother, sister, how can you doubt his love? When he gave you the Holy Spirit who prays for you, when you don't know what to pray, you can't pray, he prays for you and his prayer is always answered. When he causes everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things, he can take them in his almighty hands and work them together with other things so that this divine alchemy occurs and for all eternity you will bless God for everything that he allowed into your life. And then before you were born, knowing every sin you would ever commit against him, every unkindness you would do to him, he loved you anyway and called you. When he had no obligation to do so and he didn't need you, but he called you to himself with the kind of call that awakens the dead and ensures that you come and then gives you credit for the whole life of Jesus and is made certain that you will be with him and glorify him for all eternity and you wonder if he loves you (laughs) what would convince you more winning the publishers clearinghouse sweepstakes so the obvious question as we finish is, is God for you? Is God for you? And if you have come to Christ, and you say, I, with a, t- a trembling heart, I, 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 I think I have come to Christ. I want to have come to Christ. than my brother or sister. Realize that God is for you. And take all the spiritual pleasure you can out of that. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. But if you've not come to Christ, realize that though your life, by comparison to other people in this room today, looks pretty good. You look around and you think, you know what, I wouldn't trade places with anyone here. I've got a lot. Life's pretty good for me. So I must be, you know, okay with God. If you've never repented of all that sin and come to Christ and ask Him to have mercy on you, You've made yourself God's enemy. You made him your enemy. And you will understand one day to your horror what it means to have God as your enemy. If God is against you, who can be for you? But if you have come to Christ, if you have looked to him and said, all my hope is in him, in His righteousness, not mine, then whether you ever get the house you want or the spouse you want or the children you want or the income you want or the job you want, if you come to Christ, you get God. A God who is for you forever and if God is for you who can be against you let's pray